This is a drink with a friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what are you drinking? This episode is brought to you in part by, I say in part because it's not sponsored, but in part because I'm drinking Waterloo, mm-hmm. but I'm drinking a blueberry Waterloo, Ooh, is it which good? I've never, I've never had. I, I got to be honest with you. This one kind of misses of all the Waterloos and you know how I feel about Waterloo. I kind of yeah. love it. Yeah. This one sort of doesn't really give me the full blueberry punch in the mouth that I want. I don't know if blueberry makes good, uh, drink. I think I've learned. I don't know. It's I like sort of, them. Yeah. I like it when I can get that flavor in a coffee from time mm-hmm. to time, mm-hmm. but I sort of expected to get punched in the mouth uh, with yeah. blueberry, but instead this is sort of a, a whiff, yeah. if you will, of blueberry. Yeah. So it's not, it, I, I wish it were a little bit more. So Waterloo, if you're listening, give me some more blueberry, baby. Up your game. Yeah. yeah, up your game, up your game. Uh, Tish, what are you drinking? I decided to go really classy, and I'm drinking a black cherry White Claw. <laughs> you you stopped drinking after White Claw came out, so I'm guessing you've never had one. Just I don't guessing. even know what that is. Oh, it is like a hard seltzer, but in a can. Oh, okay. So <laughs> it's like, I don't even know what alcohol it is. Vodka, maybe? I don't know. It's basically fizzy water with something in it. Um, oh. And I am drinking this simply because it's almost 5 p.m. And I've just had two weeks of staff meetings nonstop. And I am a shell of a person. I'm exhausted. I love teenagers, but I don't want to think about teaching them about old books for, I don't know, at least a month, if I can help it, six weeks. So this is my yeah. celebratory. And it's it's pouring down rain out here. And so it just feels like kind of a, a nice day to just veg as soon as we're done here. So is this, is this sort of one of those things that you would take with you on like a tubing trip? Yeah. Because Mm. you can't be bothered to mix something Yeah, and it needs to be in a can, but you're not exactly going to impress anyone with this. So, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's somebody out there who's like, Ooh, white claw. That's super fancy dancy. Yeah. Maybe so. I don't know. All I know is it's not too expensive and it's at the grocery store. The obvious question is what does it pair well with? I, uh, enchiladas, <laughs> I'm trying to th- whatever sounds good to me right now, probably Tex-Mex, probably, yeah, nothing fancy, street tacos. I, would, I think it pairs well with dead people. <laughs> hey, nice transition. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so yeah, last week on the episode, we talked, we kind of ended half joking, half not with like, hey, let's talk about dead people whose work lives on. And we're glad about that. And we thought, hey, what a great idea we had at the spur of the moment. So um, to kind of add some levity to maybe the past few conversations, which have been on the heavier side, we thought, let's talk about not so much death, but the inevitability of death and how some people's work has lived on because they just did really good stuff while they were alive. So um, I don't know. You want to just go back and forth and talk about people whose work we're glad is still alive? Yeah, I think that'd be great. And I think, you know, as a predicate, Uh, You know, there's so much content that's generated. I mean, we've talked about this so Mm -hmm. much over and over again. And so much of it's borrowed. Some of it is just straight up stolen uh, from dead people. But so much of it is borrowed. So much of it is recycled. Um, And and some of it is just real, I I don't know, vacuous. Is that fair Mm -hmm. to say? That so much of the content generated in our internet age is vacuous. And 
I think for both of us, we've really been grounded in some ways and lifted up and encouraged and pushed on by the really good, uh, new, fresh uh, work of people who were here, you know, 60, 80, 100 years and moved on. And, And some of those people have been gone quite a while, but their work has endured. And I think both of us have this fascination with enduring work. Yeah, I remember us talking about this in Italy on the grass in front of that monastery. We, I mean, not just you and me, but a whole group of us talked about like what work is going to that's being made now is going to still be read or enjoyed or whatever in a hundred years. And our guess was not that much because that's kind of the way it's always been. It feels especially ephemeral now, just with the way social media works and how quick it is that perhaps there is something we can learn from these people whose work has remained. Like, why has it remained? And I think there's a certain timelessness to at least who I have on my short list. Um, And that, that to me is what maybe speaks to us is that, yeah, they might be talking about a time from a century ago, but it sounds like they could be talking about today. Yeah, 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 I agree with that. So, with that said, yeah, who's first on your list? Well, I don't know how you like narrowed it down because there's no way I'm gonna like talk about everybody. No way, not a not at all. So, yeah, I picked um, I I picked five people. I don't know how many you did. Um, you know what? I say that I picked five categories. Um, and maybe as I go, I'll decide who I'm gonna talk about with each category. So I, well, I see that'll that'll be fun because I only picked three. So maybe I'll get to think of uh, ah. some additionals on the fly. Okay, well, let's just see if we if we get to three each, that'll be fine. Well, the first one I have is I went with storyteller because why not? Storytellers are the things. I mean, stories are probably what endures more than anything else um, in human creation. And so the one I picked is Jane Austen. I don't know if you've read much Jane Austen. Um, I just had the torturous job of trying to narrow down what we're going to read this next school year for um, my juniors and seniors. And so I've been flipping through a lot of old work, um, a lot of dead people's writing. There's tons mm-hmm. of great stuff, but um, I went with Jane Austen because I was re-reminded of how her stories feel so timeless because they, I mean, we all know how many times they've been remade into movies, modern adaptations, um, you know, just versions of the ma- basic plots of her stories are told even now in most rom-coms or some version thereof. So I picked her specifically Pride and Prejudice because it is just so funny. Like, I don't know if you've ever read her work. She's very funny lady and her humor seems to stand up. So um, I just really admire her and her very short life. She died young. Like, seems like lots of people that whose work endures seems to have done, but that's my first choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I haven't done, uh, I haven't read a whole lot because, uh, one, as a man, you're sort of told, um, that this is like women's lit. Yep. Um, and that's really unfortunate. Um, and I actually thought about that for the first time, I guess it was last year. And I was like, you know, I've never really read Jane Austen. I wasn't made to read any. Um, and, uh, in, in high school, like we read other things and, Mm -hmm. and that's really unfortunate. Um, and I, I think I'm going to try to remedy that. I just yeah. don't know that I'm going to remedy it this year. I get it. Well, you've got time, I think, right? <laughs> I hope so. Going anywhere. So I mean, I yeah, Lord willing, you know, yeah. the yeah. days of man are numbered, Tish. That's very true. As we know from this topic. All right. Yeah. That's Who's your true. first person? Well, I guess I, you know, I, I won't go in order of how I had them listed. I will stick with your category of storytellers. Okay. 
Um, and I think one of the ones on my list is Ray Bradbury uh, for a very good reason. One, I always love Fahrenheit 451, but I really, really loved his short stories um, that are in The Painted Man and then some of his Martian Chronicles stuff. Like I've always really liked him as a writer. And I think the reason that I like him so much as a writer is because he um, – he just pulls together words in really super interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read a little bit. This is from Fahrenheit 451 and it's about uh, Montag, who is sort of the protagonist at the, the, the firehouse. And it just says he hung up his black beetle colored helmet and shined it. He hung his flame proof jacket neatly. He showered luxuriously and then whistling (laughs) hands in pockets walked across the upper floor of the fire station and fell down the hole. And what I love about that is a couple of things. One, just the, the interesting descriptions that Bradbury uses, um, uh, you know, using things like uh, beetle shaped, you know, like it kind of indicates, I mean, we all know exactly what that means, you know, but you would have never thought to have sort of said it that way. Um, uh, black beetle colored helmet. But the other thing is, you know, we talk as writers a lot about uh, striking unnecessary adverbs. And and I, I've often said to people um, when I'm coaching them or writing with them or editing them is, you know, and I don't know who I got this from. It was from somebody, but number your your adverbs, mm-hmm. you know, one one through three. And if it is a weak adverb, you know, like he ran quickly. Well, duh, he ran. Yeah. Um, number that is a one, but if it's something that's a little bit, I don't know, um, more unexpected, label it a three. And if it's in the middle, label it a two and strike all your ones, consider keeping your twos and keep all your threes. And I think that sentence that I just read is really indicative of that. He hung his flame proof jacket up neatly. So that's probably a two, right? It shows that he has this rumpled, you know, daily use jacket that he runs and uses in these fires, but he, he takes care of it. So it says neatly actually says something, but he doesn't just throw it on a hook. He hangs it neatly. It says something about his character. And then he showered luxuriously. It tells you everything you need to know about that world. Yep. Um, that this is actually like a, a pleasure, a luxury, um, and something that, that you know you really take time to enjoy. Um, and it says a lot about the character. So I've always liked Ray Bradbury. I like the way he uses imagery, but I also really appreciate the way he uses adverbs, um, particularly in light of the fact that so many writers will tell you never use any adverbs, which I think is BS. Did you know that you actually helped me with this? So for listeners who don't know, I hired Seth to edit at home in the world for me before I submitted it to my publisher. Did you know you did this with me? I don't know if you remember this. I forgot that. No. Yeah. You actually did that with me a few times. Um, you pointed out like you're, you've got a lot of boring adverbs here and you're, you were exactly right. I hadn't noticed I was too thick in the weeds to see my own writing and you made it better because of that. So oh. um, you you you've got the good adverb radar going and I, I've thought of that ever since. So I love that you brought that up. Well, and I just think it's important. I mean, again, a simple takeaway from this episode, if you're a writer, could be, or a communicator (laughs) of any sort is, Mm -hmm. label your adverbs one through three, uh, get rid of the weak ones, consider what to do with the semi-strong ones, and never delete the strong ones. Well, and what I tell my students now is, if you've got a lot of adverbs, uh, maybe that just means you need stronger verbs, you know? Yeah. 
Maybe yep. we need to change that up. So yep. good one. I like that. Absolutely. All right. Now, what is for you? I guess we're going in categories. What's your category? We two can. And what's your pick? Oh, man, this is hard. So I pick, I went with poet. And there's mm. a lot of great dead poets. So there's no way I can pick all of them. But I went with the most recent favorite of mine, who a favorite of mine who most recently died, who is Mary Oliver. She died in 2019. So just two years ago. Um, and I think what I appreciate about Mary's work, um, I, I, that sounds wrong. Oliver's work. It just sounds too familiar. <laughs> um, I don't know her. Um, is she made poetry accessible. Mm-hmm. And I had heard, I had read some critiques of her collections that said that as though it were an insult. Um, and I thought it was a compliment to me. Um, she made poetry accessible for me. I remember back reading her, you know, many moons ago when poetry seemed intimidating and she made it not so intimidating. And so I really appreciate her enduring work. And so I thought I would actually read a tiny snippet of probably her most well-known, which is called Summer Day or The Summer Day. And I'm not even going to read the whole thing, even though it's short. I'm just going to read the last half. So she says, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And, okay, so that's the end. And a lot of us know that last line. Um, That's probably one of her more famous quotes, but I love everything that precedes that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't exactly know what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention. To me, that, I mean, I just get chills and I've read it a hundred times. Um, she just takes ordinary words and ties them together in a way that yeah. just makes sense to the average listener. So yeah. I, if anyone's listening and they feel intimidate, intimidated by poetry or they don't know where to start, try with Mary Oliver first. Yeah. She's, she's really accessible. Mary Carr in her... Um... She has a book, uh, an essay called Against Decoration. I think you can find it in the back of her collection, Viper Rum. And Against Decoration talks about this very thing. It talks about, you know, the the poet who tries to gussy things up and uh, make it sound super smart. And I think all of us have been sort of, you know, who have dabbled in poetry have been guilty of that, particularly in our 20s. Um, and I think the older I get, the more I appreciate um, just plain speak. You I was know? just going to say plain speak. Yeah. 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 Even, even in, um, you know, I think about William Stafford, William Stafford's poems from Kansas. I mean, you know, he, yeah. he is very artful and beautiful, but super plain speak and, and amazing. He has a poem called scars that um, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it, you should, you should look it up, but that's not who I'm going to go with in this category. You've chosen okay. a category that there's no way mm-hmm. I could, possibly pick my favorite dead poet. Um, so when you said that, I was like, oh, Theodore Rothke. No, T.S. Eliot. No, E.E. E. Cummings. And then I just decided, uh-huh. and then I just obviously said um, someone else, uh, Bill Stafford. Uh, but I think I'm going to go with Carl Sandburg. Um, I have read The People, Yes, now twice. It is a book-length poem. And it is amazing. It is such an amazing work. And I just want to read a little bit uh, to you here. And it's about our country. And actually, I find it's really prophetic uh, for this time in our country's history. Lincoln, 
he was a mystery in smoke and flags, saying yes to the smoke, yes to the flags, yes to the paradoxes of democracy, yes to the hopes of government, of the people, by the people, for the people, no to debauchery of the public mind, no to personal malice nursed and fed, yes to the Constitution when a help, no to the Constitution when a hindrance, yes to a man as a struggler amid illusions, each man fated to answer for himself, which of the faiths and illusions of mankind must I choose for my own sustaining light to bring me beyond the present wilderness? Lincoln, was he a poet? And did he write verses? I have not willingly planted a thorn in any man's bosom. I shall do nothing through malice. What I deal with is too vast for malice. Hmm. Death was in the air. So was birth. And he has an amazing book full of that kind of stuff. I've never America. read any of his, honestly. It's that's, amazing. That's really good. Yeah. The People, Yes, you called it? The, the People, Yes. That's the name of the book. You can okay. get it on Amazon and it's, you know, just a book length poem. And I mean, every everything in it talks about, uh, you know, really the, the today's age. Uh, it's the struggle of the working class versus the non-working class, um, mm-hmm. the struggle of America in the early 1900s. Good. So, all right. Well, what is I, your category three? This is a real kind of a cop-out category because I'm calling it thinker, which I know is like everybody is a thinker. Um, but I'm calling this person a thinker because he has written fiction. He's written a ton of nonfiction. Um, and I like it both. And he's all, he was also known at the time for being a good speaker. He spoke on the radio. Hmm. And so to me, he's just an all, overall good thinker. And that's G.K. Chesterton. So oh. he is somebody that I had heard of in high school, but he just sounded old and dead, you know, frankly, and just not accessible back to that word. Um, but I, so I found him again later in life and I've grown to appreciate him the older I get because of how he spoke truth about his time, which was the the early 20th century. So like, I want to say early 1900s to about 1930, 1940 is, is when he was at his height. And the things he wrote about his time read timeless. And leading literary London, doing research about all the greats over there, I came to learn how many people were influenced by him people that you would be surprised about that count Chesterton as an influence. Gandhi counts him as an influence, you know, Agatha Christie, people that, I mean, all sorts of genres are just, I'm Neil Gaiman. I'm just continually surprised by how many people love Chesterton. So Mm -hmm. I just really appreciate him. I, I love how funny he is. I love his father Brown character. Um, I love his conversion story, you know, um, Mm -hmm. becoming Catholic And so there's a few quotes of his that I love. I'll just read them quickly because they all come mostly from nonfiction essays about religion, about politics, and about the need for good stories. And those are things that I find myself thinking about a lot as I get older. Um, One of my favorites that he says is, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Mm. To me, that's fantastic. Um, I love his idea of, so Substack readers of mine will know this quote because I've already I've mentioned it several times, but this quote really connected with me 
during quarantine, uh, whenever we were stuck in place and couldn't travel last year. And it says this, of all modern notions, the worst is this, that domesticity is dull. Inside the home, they say, is dead decorum and routine. Outside is adventure and variety. But the truth is that the home is the only place of liberty, the only spot on earth where a man can alter arrangements suddenly, make an experiment or indulge in a whim. The home is not the one tame place in a world of adventure. It is the one wild place in a world of rules and set tasks. Mm. And that was a lifeline. I think last year when we were, we had tickets bought and trips planned and we couldn't take any of them. But uh, just to reread his thoughts a couple times that the home can be a place of adventure whenever we make it where we're meant to be, the spot on earth where we can make an experiment or indulge in a whim. And I'm not saying we did it perfectly <laughs> last year, but it was at least a reminder that we don't necessarily always have to be going somewhere interesting to be interested in things. So yeah. I like I like the guy. If if I didn't know any Chesterton the, you know, and and probably not Father Brown. Probably not. You know, uh, we're think we're talking about thinkers, not novelists, right now. Yeah. Uh, where would I start? Where would you recommend I start? Um, I would start with Orthodoxy, even though it's going to be a slow read. Orthodoxy is where he packs the most punch. I feel like he says what needs saying. He says maybe it's what I need say uh, need to hear, but I really like how he processes thoughts and how he comes to conclusions and decides something is true and therefore chooses to believe it because he's come to the understanding that it's true. I really appreciate watching him process in that way. Um, if, if that concept is new to you, it's, it's going to feel heady, but not as heady as Aquinas, not as heady as some other yeah, dead people. True. So, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I dig it. Yeah, there you go. All right, who's next on your list? So my dead, uh, my dead thinker would be, and this was not in my category, so this is really fun for me. Um, okay, good. Jacques Ellul, the French philosopher. I think Ellul gets a bad rap sometimes because of his association with Christian anarchy, mm. um, which is deeply misunderstood, but that's a topic for a whole nother day. Um, but he has a book called False Presence of the Kingdom, Okay. That was actually super instrumental in my understanding two things. One, there was a time when I would have said, like, we are not people of the world. We, you know, like, how are we supposed to vote? You know, this this binary system that gives us choices that aren't any good. Like, how am I supposed to navigate that? Um, and he helped me really understand um, a couple things. One, the role of your faith in the world. And two, the role of the world in influencing faith. Um, which are both very important things. And and he was dealing with a very particular crisis um, in the 1940s, 50s um, in France. Um, and the Protestant church in particular, because he was Protestant, was uh, getting hyper involved in politics. And he was saying, warning, warning, this is not going to go well if you start making deals between church and state. Um, the state is going to influence you far more than uh, you're going to influence the state. And so though you think you're bringing Christian perspective to this political problem of the day, what's going to end up happening is the state is going to infiltrate you and ruin you and bring down the church in France, the Protestant church in France. And mm -hmm. um, I'm no historian, 
but I can see what exists uh, in the Protestant uh, church in France in 2020. I think Alul was probably onto something. Mm-hmm. When was he around? So he would have been around. He was, I mean, he was around for a while, um, but he was being published a lot in the late 50s and early 60s. Okay. Um, and he was, um, I believe he was a philosophy professor. I know he's a professor, but I think it was in philosophy. He also wrote a lot about technology, um, which, which he would have called technique um, and innovation and how technology and innovation leads to dehumanization, which is really interesting stuff. Hmm. But let me read you a bit from his book, False Presence of the Kingdom. Okay. And this is, is particularly on the topic of uh, politics and the church. Christians who are conformed to the world introduce into the church the value judgments and concepts of the world. They believe in action. They want efficiency. They give first place to economics, and they think all means are good for the spread of the church goes without saying. The Protestant thinks to adopt the means which the world employs. Since he finds those means useful in his profession or in his leisure time, they stand so high in his estimation that he cannot see why he should not introduce them into the church and make the things of the spirit dependent upon them. Hmm. Sounds like today. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Dang. Yeah, so what he's saying is like you go out there and you look at all of these mechanisms, whether it's speed or efficiency or entertainment or celebrity or whatever, and you bring those back in and you introduce them into um, your own faith practices that will ultimately lead to the demise of your faith practices. And, you know, again, he was Protestant um, and Christian, but I would say that that applies to any uh, denomination, to any religious structure or religion. Um, and, and really, you know, to, to anything that is uh, related to sort of inner, the inner life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read it now. It's great. It's amazing. And it is a slow read too, but I did have a friend that I recommended it to who scoffed at me. And then five years later um, in 2016 told me that he uh, made his entire voting decision based on that book. So there is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's no pressure, no pressure. So what is your next category? Uh, My next category was musician. Again, like the poets, it's impossible to pick because if you think of all the dead musicians, um, it's impossible. So I went with a classic, which is Mozart, which sounds weird because I was debating him, Marvin Gaye, you know, I mean, so many other musicians. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, why is he standing out to me? I think he stands out to me because he is such a head scratcher to me. Amadeus was one of my favorite movies me too. Okay, as a teenager, I yeah, I would watch that on repeat. Like, what teenager does that? But I would watch that all four hours and just like that was my summer fun. Um, I just find him so fascinating. He died young. He was a jerk. He had a lot of issues. He had um, relationship issues with his dad, who started training him to play music when he was four. But he was a prodigy, and he supported the family financially. And so he, he was put to work right away. He was estimated to have an IQ of 160. Um, Yeah. There's about, he composed about 600 things that are, 
most are still around. And he's one of the only people to have composed works in all the major genres of the time, like from operas to symphonies. I don't know classical music very well. I just know that he has a lot of, of uh, breadth in that world of things. And so, um, yeah, in a hundred of those pieces he wrote before he was 15. Mm. So he, he just boggles the mind. And, um, you know, one of the great bits about Amadeus is the story of jealousy with um, Salieri, I believe is his mm. name, which I think we can all identify with a little bit. But um, watching his jealousy because he's just so good. And it's true. So you listen to Mozart, you think eh, classical music is classical music. But if you were to search him out on Spotify, play some of his great works, you will just be you, you mm-hmm. freeze because you're just in awe of the man's work. And in particular, the piece that keeps coming to mind is the Requiem. His Requiem mm-hmm. Mass mm-hmm. is just phenomenal. Um, that's the piece that comes to mind whenever I think of the philosophical debate is beauty objective. Right. I cannot imagine listening to that and thinking, I mean, I can imagine saying that's not my taste, but saying that's not beautiful. It just objectively is. So um, Mozart's Requiem to me is one of those, um, whatever, whatever killed you, man, I'm just glad, I'm glad your work is still around hundreds of years later. Yeah, you know, every year I get back into the Requiem every year since I was 13, the first time I heard it. And every, almost every year, I feel like I learned something new about it. It's Mm. the most um, unending piece of music. It just enduring, it goes and goes and goes. And it's always a new surprise. And when you listen to different composers do it, it's like Mm. super surprising. Dang. Um, So yeah. All right, good. Do you have a musician? I know I kind of. Well, I have two. One is sort of super metaphorical, so I won't go with that one, but I'll just say it out loud, which is the yeah. Beatles. I mean, I know they're not all dead, but aren't the Beatles dead? They are dead as a group. So that's a good I choice. Mean, so mm-hmm. I kind of went with, I was kind of thinking that, uh, that yeah. in that vein. And, and we love the Beatles in my house. We mm-hmm. play the Beatles all the time in my house. My youngest is obsessed with the Beatles and would probably love to be uh, a Beatle if he could have a time machine. Mm. Um, but since that's only metaphorical, I will go with John Coltrane. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah. I love jazz, jazz music in yeah. general, but, um, I just love Coltrane's story and he had his own sort of, uh, deep conversion from, um, just this hard drug abuser, um, his, his own uh, genius with the horn, um, saxophone and then, uh, you know, playing with Miles Davis and, um, just the amazing jazz musicians of the of the era, but then uh, releasing um, a love supreme as sort of this sort of transcendent experience with God, and and sort of naming that almost as a, a as a worship album. And I'm kind of with you, and I use that worship album in a very loose sense, but in the highest sense. I know what you mean. Um, and I'm kind of with you, man. Like when you listen to John Coltrane particularly when you listen to a love Supreme. And if you know anything about his backstory and his uh, bouts with addiction um, and ultimate freedom, it's hard to listen to that and say, there is no such thing as objective beauty. Mm. I mean, it is riff after riff is so rich. Mm. Um, It just, it's, it's such a good, a good piece of music. Nice. Yeah. That's a great choice. I I debated something like that. So I'm glad you said it. That's a really good one. All right. Nice. All right. Next category. Is this the last category? Yeah, this is my fifth. And dang, it's a 50-50 tie for me. So I went with actor. I was like artist, actor, 
actor, artist, couldn't decide. I went with actor as a form of art. There are two that come to mind nearly tied for me because I get a, a pang anytime I see them on screen because I know they're not alive anymore. Mm. First one is Alan Rickman. Mm. When he died, that was a gut punch, I yeah. felt. Yeah. Because I love his work as Snape. I love his work as um, Colonel Brandon is who I think of because that's who I, where I saw him first on Sense and Sensibility. Um, the man is just fantastic. I love his voice. I love what he just, I love what he does. I love what he does to his craft. The person though that comes to mind is Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And it really hit me this year because we watched, uh, Tate and I, I showed her Dead Poet Society for the first time. One of my all-time favorite movies. I adore that movie. And I was in tears kind of the whole time, not because of the storyline, but because I knew that he was no longer with us. Yeah. Um, the man was brilliant. I love his work. And it's kind of sad, not kind of, it is sad. He's not with us. Um, but I am grateful for the work he did put out while he was. So that's my choice. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he and also Philip Seymour Hoffman are really yes. difficult mm-hmm. ones for me because they were both so talented and yeah. so uh, plagued uh, by darkness. Um, and there was mm-hmm. something to that, that, that led to their creative genius, I think. Um, but at the same time, it's just like, when I think about those losses, it just feels, I don't know why it's, it, it's like Anthony Bourdain. It feels close to home and I don't understand why I don't know them. Um, but there's just something that was utterly human about them. Well, and I think we're getting into the, why their work matters. Cause they're, you know, if we're talking about sacramentality on this podcast, that's, I think a reason, like they spoke to something bigger than the thing that they were doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So my choice in this category, and I yeah. actually thought that you might mention an actor today. Um, okay. And so this is going to be a really weird choice because really this is only based on one movie. Okay. And it's Jimmy Stewart. Oh, um, yeah, it's a good choice. And the reason that I say Jimmy Stewart is not, I mean, maybe he was an amazing actor. I don't know. When I watch older movies, I have a hard time telling who was an amazing actor and who wasn't because they're so over the top. Yeah. Everything's crazy. (laughs) So I don't, you know, people are like, oh, he was such an amazing actor for the day. And I'm like, was he really though? Um, (laughs) But anyway, uh, I love Jimmy Stewart. And the reason that I love Jimmy Stewart is that um, even in all of his over the topness, well, I guess Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's another one where I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, that, you know, uh, that character I resonated with. But even in all of his over the topness, there, that just nostalgic um, sort of, I don't know, just good guy ishness mm-hmm. um, kind of came out of him. And, and we, so we watch every uh, year, we watch It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas. It is not Christmas until we watch It's a Wonderful Life. And right. I kind of force fed my kids this one and I felt super bad about it, you know. And then this year, one of my kids was like, it's not Christmas until we watch It's a Wonderful Life. And I was like, yeah. my job is done here. I was just going to say that. You did a good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And and we were watching it again. So this is like probably the fifth or sixth year in a row that we've watched it as a family. Um, I've watched it every year since Amber and I've been married, um, which I had never seen it before that. And, mm-hmm. and so it's not like it reminds me of my childhood. It's not like I have some fascination with the, I don't know, whatever that was, 40s or 50s. But, uh, and it's not like I have this huge, like, taste for nostalgia either. But there's just something about the story of a good man who's down on his luck, realizing what 
it means to live a good life. And yeah. Jimmy Stewart gave us that character. Um, and so I think when I think about work that endures and I think about dead actors, I don't want to speak for the rest of the corpus of his uh, <laughs> acting career because I don't know much about it, but he gave us that. Yeah. He gave us that character. And, um, and that makes me really, really happy. It does. Um, I, you know, we, we talked about this briefly around the holidays. Um, and I do know a bit about this movie because my dad is a diehard. It's a wonderful life maniac as in like he, um, yeah, he has art on the wall for it's a wonderful life. That's always up year round. Um, he used to host, That's amazing. He used to host watch parties, play trivia games for people. Um, and so I do know that one of the things interesting about that movie is it was not, a huge success when it first came out. It yeah. was kind of seen as a dud. And I want to say like until like a decade later or so, and then mm. it was dusted off and revived. Um, and to me, I'm the same. It's not Christmas until we watch that. And it, I know some people don't like it because it's a slow burn, but I, I think it's the humanity of that movie. I appreciate it the older I get. And you know what? Yeah. I think that's the thread that's common in all the stuff that we have mentioned yeah, for me. That's right. The yeah. older I get, the more I appreciate this really good art that has yeah. stood the test of time. So, yep, that's yeah. right, that's yeah. true. And I hope that some of the stuff that I listen to and read right now by living people will will be around after me. And I think some of it will. Yeah. Um, and I think the older I get, the better I am at identifying some of that. But um, I am really grateful for these, uh, you know, people who've gone on but have left us some really amazing work. I am too. And and so for those listening who are thinking about the summer coming up and it's typical of you to grab, you know, the whatever's on the new table at the bookstore, maybe consider that though that's not a bad thing, maybe consider adding some older work to your repertoire. Um, you know, in your earbuds, in your library holds, whatever it is, because you might be surprised at how timeless it is and how you might like it more than you think you do. Don't use high school right. English as your um only experience for some of this. You might you might find how much you have grown to like it as an adult. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All right. So um, kind of weird to talk about this right after we just went through all this work, but do you have anything that you're reading, watching or listening to? Maybe it's newer, maybe not. Um, that's bringing more beauty to your life. Um, I would say that this falls in the middle category. It's not newer. Okay. It's not older, but Amber and I love science fiction. Mm -hmm. I think you know this. We've talked mm -hmm. about this. If I could do anything under a pen name, it would be write pulp, pulpy science fiction. Like I would mm -hmm. love any, if you're an editor out there and you're listening and you're looking to acquire someone to write uh, a science fiction under a pen name, give me a shout. But anyway, so my fascination has led us to several shows that we really love. One of which is fringe. I think I've probably talked about that before uh -huh. with you. The other though, is oh the expanse we've definitely talked about that on this show but yeah. the sort of uh, the, the 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 base for all of that the basis for all that was Battlestar Galactica the new Battlestar Galactica okay i saw that you were say, yeah you mentioned somewhere you were watching it again or something yeah which is to say the one from the early 2000s and um so we decided to start watching it again and we decided that we are going to create a uh parents guide for it because there's not one mm -hmm online and there is some stuff on there that's like you know if you have a 16 or 17 year old you can be like okay listen kids but if you have a nine-year-old you can't really watch it and so right. we've decided to make some time stamps and some marks so that everyone can watch it uh i mean if you want to watch it 
right. which everyone should want to watch it. But as we were watching it, I'm thinking, man, this is, I, I thought it was really timely during the Afghanistan war. And now I'm thinking, mm. man, this is like super timely stuff for right now. Wow. Um, and again, I think, you know, truth, beauty, or goodness, that's a kind of a broad character uh, guidelines um, and broad characteristics. But I think, you know, definitely this falls in the truth bucket. I mean, there are nice. some things that happen on that show where I'm like, yes, that is where we find ourselves right now. Or yes, that is the most human expression of, you know, anything that I've, you know, seen mm-hmm. on television in the last year. I mean, um, so it just, it seems to keep getting it like, like the work that we've talked about, it seems to get, keep getting better as the years pass. And it's kind of phenomenal. Well, I want you to create the parent guide then because that's, we've never watched any of it and it's been on our to watch list because we think at least two out of three of our kids would love it. So um, it's, it's something we want to, to get into as a family. It's, so it's a need. It's amazing. It's amazing. And we've already completed the minis- mini series. Um, and I think Amber's going to maybe throw it up on her a blog whenever we get it all completed. Nice. nice. So cool. what are all you right. listening to watching, uh, reading that's yeah. bringing truth, beauty, or goodness to your life? Well, I haven't had much free time because of all my meetings and my book edits, but this came in the mail about, I don't know, a week ago. Um, and it is by a friend, Sarah Clarkson. I know her mom, maybe a little bit more than her, Sally Clarkson. Mm-hmm. So this is her oldest daughter. Um, she's an American who is married to an Anglican priest in England. And it's called This Beautiful Truth, which I think is pretty fitting for this podcast. We might need to have her on. But it's her story of, I'm only on chapter two. So I'm going to just say that point blank. I, I don't know how it ends up. But um, I I really like her work. I like how she thinks about life. I like what she says when she is online, which isn't often, which I also appreciate. And so this is a story about her struggle with mental illness and Mm. what she's learned about God and specifically OCD. But I think it's applicable to all sorts of mental illness or even just struggle um, when you're kind of questioning why God allows bad things to happen to good people. Yeah. Um, so she ended up studying that at Oxford Theodicy, um, getting multiple degrees in it, just out of interest in her own life um, of, of this issue that has never been resolved in human history. But um, this is a really well done job so far um, as I start chapter three. So we'll find out. But anyway, that's, I'll put it in the show notes. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to uh, hearing more. Yeah, yeah. It's a good read right now. So, um, yeah. I'll keep you posted. All righty. Well, this will wrap it up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. Let's see. You can support us over there at a drink with a friend.com as well for just a few bucks. If you want to buy the next round of drinks, it helps keep the lights on around here because what we do isn't free, but it's free for you to consume. So if you love it, um, that's how you can partner with us. And we super duper appreciate it. You can find me and all of my work, especially my newsletter and my books at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you? They can find me at sethhaines.com and Instagram. Find me on Instagram. I'm posting photos again. Instagram.com slash sethhaines with an I. Yeah. With an I? Oh, Haines. Well, yeah. H-A-I-N-E-S. Yeah. People always spell it with the underwear and then I don't know who that Seth Haines is. I thought you meant Instagram with an I. I was like, how else would no. you spell Instagram? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. With a Y? 
I guess, why. Sometimes a Y. An E, Instagram. I don't know. All right. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. Caroline Tassell is our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And Seth and I will be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.